So her album, I guess, comes out on Friday, and it's called like Miss Anthropocene, I think. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh. All right. Welcome to the Death Panel, a production of Mayor Pete for America. Oh, God. <laughs> Is that That's... the official name of the organization? <laughs> probably. I think so. No, I think it's Pete for America, but probably if we said Pete for America, no one would understand nathan for you pete for america <laughs> right exactly i want i want for that for that like llc to be like abandoned at some point <laughs> and then to take it up and turn it into like a peat farming yeah uh, It'll be- <laughs> <laughs> like a like a peat moss farming thing so that we can make like uh, american scotch that is so many good business ideas <laughs> that is in fact uh the latest bernie sanders policy proposal peat for all um, anyways you can support P-E-A-T. the show you can support the show at patreon.com slash death panel pod today it is me Artie Vincent Phil hello hi and uh Bernie Sanders did not announce a plan to give everyone free Pete Moss but <laughs> no. that's fine we can dream we can <laughs> gotta, sure. gotta push him a bog everyone yeah. deserves a bog <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did you guys see, speaking of Bernie Sanders, like over the weekend, the, uh, which presidential candidate are you, uh, yeah, Ulysses made that. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Remember my friend Ulysses, the heel concepts, Ulysses. Oh my God. Yeah. Man is a genius that Ulysses is amazing. That was incredible because so for everybody who hasn't seen it, it's a, uh, it's like an Instagram. It's like the, what Pokemon are you? Yeah. It's like a, what, whatever bullshit are you, uh, Instagram stories filter and uh, it just scrolls through all of the presidential candidates uh, and then always lands on Bernie. I mean, TBH, I I have to say, like, I was trying to get essentially something like that to work. Mm -hmm. But um, (laughs) Ulysses beat me to it and did it much better and funnier than I was going to. Nice. Um, Because it was going to, the one I was working on gave you Elizabeth Warren and then you was supposed to then put like a sad clown face on your face afterwards <laughs> but it's like it's like too much code and i haven't figured it out yet yeah because oh like Facebook's- the shining elevators open and then just blood comes out. <laughs> yeah probably like, better to just do like positive messaging yeah facebook has like- their own like proprietary software for this like face uh, filter thing which right. i'm sure they're doing like terrible horrible things with and so they have this like whole internal system and it is like totally difficult to navigate I'd i'm say. sure it's yeah. kind of stupid anyways congrats to Ulysses on a beautiful filter. (laughs) Should we move on to the show? Yeah. Maybe. Let's do it. So let's go ahead and kind of pick up where we left off on our most recent Patreon episode. (laughs) We have actually like a very uh, characteristically wonk heavy episode. Wonk forward possibly. Um, (laughs) In this one. uh, For the season. Notes of cherry. Little little wonk on the nose. (laughs) Sazerac. Dry round finish. We're going to uh, do what all wonks do really well which is talk about some studies some papers and i promise they're actually they really white? interesting they are white papers yes <laughs> multicolored. So, um but we're also still in the middle of a war also iran yeah. yeah i mean one of many wars but <laughs> yeah yeah I, I got in the car tonight and i turned on the radio and i was like oh good i've wanted to hear master shake and master shake's <laughs> opinions on iran oh no <laughs> lord I mean, uh, let's see what's happened since we last sat down to talk about Iran. They they fired a missile at a base. 
in Iraq. Several. Several. Oh, God. What else has happened today? I Uh, mean, Trump. So I I can probably run through actually the timeline because I I was um, getting the push notifications from the New York Times like while working uh, from home most of the day. You didn't mute. You didn't mute it this time. I know I did not because (laughs) Lord. Uh, And essentially it seems like so the I think the strike happened sometime yesterday, I want to say. And then Tuesday, Tuesday night. evening. Yeah. Tuesday evening. And uh, this morning or yesterday morning or whenever time is a flat circle, uh, Trump came out and said that he, we would no longer like aggress against Iran and that that was finished, like sort of some kind of like weird mob capo type of like our business is done like type of thing and then this <laughs> afternoon nancy pelosi uh like characteristically too little and too late um <laughs> said that she would announce a resolution to uh not allow trump to basically take any action against iran uh without the express direction of congress starting 30 days from now <laughs> starting right. 30 days from now well, 30 days from when it one like, entire passes, one entire which- <laughs> war from now in fact what is it? <laughs> war in 1967 between Israel and Egypt. Seven oh, the, days war. Yeah, I think it's seven days war. Yeah, four seven days wars from now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, and the the sort of the order of operations here was somewhat confusing because the the same times last night there was uh, interview with uh, Iranian officials that were you know who were basically calling what the United States did the assassination and active war, which it was, and then the the off ramp was. Well, we're going to just take a proportion. This was a proportionate response. And now, unless there's further escalation, we're done. Right. right? So mm-hmm. basically putting putting the ball in Trump's court, which is sort of the best thing that could have happened uh, for Trump. It was it was uh, just sort of a gift that like landed in his lap, I think. Yeah. I mean, it just remains to be seen if he'll stick to it, I guess. I don't think that there's any way this is ending, especially with like how concerted the effort has been from the Republic, like the mainstream Republican Party for the past like 15 years to try and make war with Iran happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine that it's going to, not continue to escalate to be on. I don't mean to be like a downer, but no, I mean, I, I sort of, I'm irrepressibly somebody who thinks about everything in terms of domestic politics. I mean, like I, I don't think about grand strategy, which in this case I think is probably appropriate because there is no grand strategy <laughs> right. uh, here. I mean, I, I just, I see this as being to, to think of this as foreign policy is probably a category error. This is domestic. <laughs> yeah. This is domestic policy and the domestic policy of the Trump administration is nativism, ethnocentrism and uh, Islamophobia. And uh, you know, this is in a way having Soleimani drawn into sort of bold relief here and to have like images of Iran on TV, it's like that is sort of firmly within the court of uh, of Trump's ideational scheme. I think it it, it mm-hmm. makes it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing is like he could strike Iran again if he I don't know was like just as I constipated mean, as he was over fucking Christmas. Like, I mean, there were multiple <laughs> earthquakes overnight, which did make B and I think. <laughs> Are there earthquake bombs? Do we have an earthquake machine? <laughs> yeah. Did we um, test it on Puerto Rico and then use <laughs> right, it on yeah, Iran? Exactly. Or um, am I just hallucinating post retirement? You're listening to Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that being said, I guess, uh, you know, nuclear strikes can also. I set mean, off okay, so as I already pointed out, uh, our, our good friend of the pod, Nick Salvatore, the other day, uh, like a month ago, 
posted a thread on Twitter with like detailed photos and evidence of uh, actually a existing. bomb that has swords on it. Yeah, sword bomb. <laughs> Literally yeah. a bomb that is th- covered in huge blades. <laughs> that are spinning? Yeah. And like I, rotating? So like an earthquake machine? Frankly, if I work for Raytheon... Less, like, is like a little yeah. less like cartoonish well, in my mind than for, a sword bomb? You work for Raytheon long enough, you just start running out of ideas. Exactly. Yeah. No, You're you like, work for Raytheon long enough and they let you have your 14-year-old like bring your kid to work day. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. It's like That's, sword bomb and then you're like, you know what? But on each sword, I want a bunch of forks. So much so much depends on the next generation, you know? It's really important to the, get Start to put their early. swords on stuff. I do think that like one one uh, thing though, you know, Phil, you're saying it's like domestic politics. Obviously, it's like clearly is going to and continues to have like huge international reverberations and also like... I oh think yeah, absolutely. The, um, I don't know, like some of the response and the way that already the overall narrative is being skewed is really disheartening. Um, I did myself the disservice of listening to Pod Save the World today. Oof. Because, um, you know... You're brave. Because I just... Th- thrive in an anaerobic environment you know <laughs> i really love to asphyxiate myself um but uh basically th- basically they like recorded a segment one at like pretty much like right at the top i didn't get through much of it to be totally honest but like right from the top even had this guest on who was essentially saying that like it was suspicious that the iraqi parliament like voted to ouster the troop presence mm-hmm. or like the the u.s and all foreign troop presence like uh shortly after the Soleimani uh, assassination mostly because like in their words essentially withdrawing uh withdrawing foreign and american troops from iraq is exactly what the iranians would want we can't give in to that yeah Whereas, because we're an <laughs> occupying force right um and basically saying like uh, like literally suggesting um like verbatim that the uh, that like the iranians had something to do with iraqi parliament voting for yeah. troop ouster after Well, you know what the Iranians so. did vote for, which is pretty cool, is to designate the, uh, is it the Pentagon and the U.S. military as terrorist organizations? <laughs> Inshallah, hell yeah. I mean, that's pretty true. Yeah, that's not so untrue at all. Me. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely, like, see it from the pod save, like, way if you were to essentially, like, ignore half of the facts of everything. I mean, literally... What the? I mean, that's how they survive. Is, no, totally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the that's very true, and I think one of the things that's been like the grossest for me the past like twenty four hours has been seeing people who are like adamantly voicing anti war opinions, but still acting like the U S. could take Iran in a ground war and should and should, yeah. but that right. we're like a little better than that, You're and so we about can't your do Elizabeth's Warren. <laughs> um, <laughs> perhaps sorry go ahead you know it's like like we we won't stoop to that level like it's a very uh they go low we go high vibe right yeah um right but but i think the thing is and and likely even if there were sustained pressure from the white house on this you have to imagine that military would there there would be some pushback right that just operationally Mm -hmm. uh there would be pushback nevertheless i think what this does is it sort of i think like one thing that's that's common in conservative foreign and domestic policy is the the idea of like um the problem with the policy that they that they sort of self-identify as we're not doing it hard enough. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, 
Oh, free markets. Yes. But we're not going. The problem with them is that we haven't really tested them. There's like a promise. <laughs> right. land. Oh, that's, There's a pro- that's what You've still is? never seen a truly free market before. Yeah, exactly. This is, I mean, if you think about like, I always think about like Rand Paul's perception, you know, his, if yeah. there are complaints from his constituents about like the sort of deleterious effects of, uh, of capitalism, he's like, well, you know, the problem is we don't really have real free market capitalism. We haven't right. tested it. And I, I kind of feel like what this, what the off ramp does for the sort of the Iran hawks is it allows them to continue to talk about and project this threat without ever really, you know, having to face the consequences of what what the policy would look like mm-hmm. um, on the ground. And, and the problem is like when the second or third generation of leaders comes in and they have only existed in the imaginary promised land, right. then things get very dangerous. The risks increase. I think that's a really good point. I mean, and I, I think like a hilarious example of the sort of clumsy machine continuing to move forward is the uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, oh God, misquote yeah. on Don Lemon's like uh, uh, CNN show. Not misquote. Uh, <laughs> or she me. misspoke, no. her staff said. <laughs> uh-uh. But that's actually not true. What she did was lie on television. Yeah, her <laughs> explicit Amy Klobuchar's Midwestern fear mongering session on mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. Um, Saying like, that uh, Iran had not only said that they weren't going to honor the nuclear deal, but they are also anna- that they had announced that they were developing a nuke. Yeah, well, and, that, and, to, and to strike the United States, basically, right. was the idea. And right. then also, like, you had fucking Liz Warren go on The View, like, the view and responding to, like, being badgered by Meghan McCain, who was not satisfied with the fact that Liz Warren was not going to, like, in the conversation on The Fucking View explicitly, uh, you know, state that, like, Soleimani was a terrorist or whatever. Like, Wouldn't it be cool if she had been like, he's not a terrorist? Liz we Warren. <laughs> Liz Warren. She had the it, chance. In, in a fucking moment where it's very important to show that you actually have, I don't know, a backbone on this when we are like, when it's very important to not mislead people deliberately or unintentionally into another fucking disastrous war. Liz Warren caved to Megan McCain of all uh, fucking yeah. people. Uh, and was like because the the clip is crazy it's like uh real iron will there liz it's megan being like but why won't you call him a terrorist why won't you call him a terrorist why won't you call him a terrorist and her answer is like well i mean he he was a terrorist in that he was part of what the u.s government considers to be a terrorist organization so yes of course he was a terrorist and the irgc the uh, iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps was like only designated a terrorist organization in April. Basically, it sounds like at the behest of John Bolton um, and the fucking Trump administration and a bunch of officials were like bragging that it was the first time that a like the entire one entire like branch of a foreign government was labeled a terrorist organization. Yeah, like I mean, the right answer not, would have been literally to say what you just said to Meghan McCain. Right. Also, but then it's not just. Warren uh, folding to Meghan McCain, it's her implicitly agreeing with John Bolton. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. this is madness. Mm-hmm. It's absolute madness. No, but you know what she does have that other candidates don't have? A, a two-person selfie line. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Can we play that clip? We? I feel yeah. like we need a palate cleanser. Just do it. Do it. All right. So, so fair, fair warning. I, I haven't seen this yet. Yeah. For context, uh, this is a video from her rally, Liz Warren's rally in Brooklyn from earlier this week. So here's 
I'm going to talk a little bit, for any of you who don't know me, tell you a little bit about myself. Tell you, Have you dined with us before? I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I'm in this fight, and then we're going to do something historic, right at the center of democracy. Julian and I, for the first time in history, we're going to stand here and do double selfies. No, 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 no. Oh, own it. I guess Wait. own it at this point. I, 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 yeah. Right in the oh. center of democracy. Did right. <laughs> Major uh, DNA test energy. Can I just say? Yeah. Like, you know, Julian and I are going to do this first ever historic two person selfie line. Did, did she announce Julian Castro as her VP pick? No, but it's whatever. Oh, he, he endorsed <laughs> no, just like, her. What? What Black Mirror? What Black Mirror episode is it where democracy involves selfies? I like right, yeah, totally. Like all of them, where selfies (laughs) flaunt democracy in some way. I mean, literally, she says like right here in the center of democracy, we're going to do the selfie line, right in democracy's butthole. Yeah, we're gonna just plant a big selfie line. Okay, I'm just um, okay. Now I'm imagining that it's Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, except it's the selfie line. I mean, I think the like the VP question is funny, Vince, because like um, they have been literally like even I think in the week or so before before Castro dropped out, so much of their messaging has gotten like completely aligned. Literally, also yeah. Castro dropped out. I think I probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but Castro dropped out on yeah, the day. So that Warren's disability plan uh, came out. Like her plan is mostly a carbon copy of his. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't even give disability Twitter a chance to pick which one they liked better because his like dissolved the same day that hers bounced. Because they were all for Castro, not all four, but like they were, they, they were like, really wanting Castro to be on the debate yeah, stage. Yeah, they're not loving me right now. I'm sure, whatever. But <laughs> No, but like, and I think that was like a really deliberate move to just sort of like take that goodwill, that uh, small but vocal community who's like a good constituency to virtue signal to and immediately just sort of transfer that base um, from one campaign to the other. Well, also then I could just completely see, to, like to me, Julian Castro makes sense as VP pretty much only for like the Warren campaign. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no. I feel like that's the only place that he could go. And it also seems like the kind of thing that a bunch of the like incredibly uh, preening, obnoxious Warren people would like think was a good idea or yeah. something. And he's from Texas. Like yeah. their whole thing is like, oh, we're going to get Texas. And I mean, the other thing that to me is like, this makes a pattern is that uh, like right when Jay Inslee dropped out, right? Warren basically uh, yeah. just like <laughs> scooped up Scoop his plan. Yeah. Like essentially what she's just doing is uh, waiting until people drop out and then taking their plans. Kind like, of like the alien and alien. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, she's waiting for a plan for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like honestly, well, it's crazy, but like I'm kind of curious, like what would have happened if Bernie had dropped out after his heart attack? She would have like scooped up all of those. She definitely wouldn't have. She wouldn't have. No, no, because it's about becoming like a larger, more liberal, gigantic like helium balloon or something, and like there's no room for any- a helium a helium balloon that is palatable to the establishment. Yeah. <laughs> Much well, like- I mean, it's, it's I, I think vice presidential selection is such a it's dumb. It, it, it well, it's a it's a uh, sort of, it's like alchemy or something like that. It's there's nothing, 
uh, I think the the argument for a long time is like, you know, you shore up some part of the base or you uh, try to get this like home state advantage. From what I've read of the literature, it's like it's never clear what the net effect of a vice presidential selection is either at the primary stage or in the general necessarily. I mean, it's it's easy to tell. I mean, or like it's easy to like blame a vice presidential pick for things not going well, but it's like the same idea that failure has like a a million parents and, and success has like none. Um, but the, but like when it comes to Castro, I mean, I have no idea what the sort of like net effect of this, this sort of the, the looks of a partnership here will have. I mean, it, it, it could just be trying to get some kind of, you know, momentary bump or, or, or boost right going into, uh, into Iowa and nothing more. Right. Um, it could be ephemeral. But that's what, I mean, that's literally the only thing that presidential candidates or presidential vice, vice presidential candidates are good for, right? Is well, like, that being like essentially a body double and then the significant other is kind of like a, another body double for right. like campaign, like on the ground totally. in-person events. Yeah. But, you but know, like the Sanders campaign, I think has been very smart about establishing all these like diverse and like very strong voices that are centered in the campaign and their issues who are like going out and talking like you know just thinking about the like the brooklyn rally for bernie right Right, versus the brooklyn rally for liz which i did not attend but i watched the live stream of very different vibes right you know what i mean like very different vibes bernie had a ton of speakers who are all like people in and of their own right. And they talked about their own things that centered in issues that are part of his campaign. Yeah. Warren's they talk about Warren. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just a very different like tenor and they've kind of already like set up all these figures that are just as useful almost as like having an endorsement from a candidate that's just dropped out. Well, that's why like, I mean, I feel like the, maybe the picking up policies lying around or something, (laughs) Uh, as they fall off the back of the truck or whatever is a, is a good analogy because like for the, I do feel like I get that, like the sense that you're describing, I also get, and I get the sense that like, so the Sanders team that, or that, and that like kind of entire apparatus is, is essentially like bringing in people who come with their own ideas that are not just like focus tested to death or something right. um, that then become like rolled into the platform uh, uh, or whatever whereas mm-hmm. like and I think the housing plan is a really good example of that right whereas right. like the Warren team is like picking up the focus test the pre-focus tested platform mm-hmm. basically right. well and, um, and the other thing is that like the reason that they're getting brought in right is because they have that right. a novel good strategy yeah. like Warren is definitely you're right pre-focus testing stuff and then going out to find somebody who has a position that matches as closely as possible with like the best tested strategy. Well, you know, the selfie line is a lot of work though. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like Liz is putting in the FaceTime, doing all those selfies. No wonder she has no energy to think of anything else for her campaign other than more <laughs> selfies because also, she's so tired from standing in goddamn selfie lines. It also takes a lot of like, you know, etymological and syntactic effort and stretching there because those are in no way selfies i know a lot of people have talked about this but really like they hand you they hand you yeah, hand can we talk a about that for a second yeah to a staffer this is your art critique of yeah well no it's not an art critique it's a it, this is a basic it's kind is, of an art critique there's a word called selfie yes it, it words have meaning. meaning people like <laughs> 
You know um, what I mean? Like professor so, of photography a, at Penn. Yes, exactly. About to teach a class called the non-human teach. image. As, as a as a photographer, which is the only context wow. in which I'm going to pull this wow, card. No, go in. A selfie is when you take the photo of yourself. <laughs> yourself. Yes. Cindy That's Sherman it. took selfies. Liz no. Warren is having her photo taken. No, you, I feel like you have to hold the camera or you have you to be literally, you have to be like, I don't know. I'm sure there's a the trigger. Button I'm willing part of the camera. I'm willing to That's accept stuff argue. for like assistive devices as okay. part of being of doing a selfie. Totally fine. But either what, way, Liz Warren is not clicking the shutter nor indicating when it should be clicked so there's no intent and there's a staffer taking a photo of two people that is a photograph that is not a selfie can i can (laughs) i just saying can i maybe interject one question into all of this is it a selfie only for the person who snaps the photograph is it a selfie for everybody else in the photo oh. or is it a photograph just for them i think all right that you've uh opened up a really interesting ontological question there and i am <laughs> willing to be compelled either way <laughs> <laughs> the important part to me is that no one's holding the phone and it's i do think i, I know that this is okay this is stupid to argue over <laughs> this is so stupid to no, argue over but i do no, I, there's I, a point, actually enjoy there's this, a point this, here because it's about it is about this whole fu- like it, anyone who's Liz ever taken keep a promise anyone who's ever taken one fucking art school class will know that like images have power yes and if you can sit there and stand with a candidate and hold the selfie and like hold, sorry hold the cell phone and take a selfie you can do stuff like they're engineering they're doing they're taking they're stealing the valor of the selfie by mm. like, stealing the intimacy of a selfie they're, too. no they're stealing the valor of the selfie by like not making it possible for like someone to do the thing where like they're taking the thing and they're taking the selfie and as they open their shirt it says bernie or right. something like as they open the their staffer jacket can delete the photo or whatever before right. yeah exactly also you have to give like you're giving a staffer like an your unlocked cell phone. Disgusting. Mm-mm. That person's hands are disgusting by the end of the day. Your phone <laughs> is a biohazard. What if you're Paul Krugman and you have, a, I guess, a bunch of <laughs> child porn on there? No, I'm that's his ISP called him and he was hacked. That child porn belongs to Q. That's right. The New York Times is on it. They're New York Times get to is the on it. Paul one. Krugman um, is expecting his reputation to be fully expunged of all credible accusations of him <laughs> possessing large quantities of child pornography on his personal yeah. and computers frankly it doesn't really change my opinion of paul krugman see it wasn't child <laughs> pornography it was like pornographic pictures of baby yoda right yeah is what he means they're really. the same you know what i mean yeah well yeah. as and as yeah shout out to todd again and again yoda <laughs> is 50 baby yoda years old is, anyway let's get off of this <laughs> um all right so so now that we've um, the policy podcast that you come to for art critique. <laughs> for art critique and side jabs at Paul Krugman. <laughs> now that we've gone there, should we get into the wonk zone? I think we should skip straight to the wonk zone. Yeah. shift into third and accelerate into the wonk zone. Do you Sorry. ever just uh, <laughs> sit, sit in your truck and read white papers? <laughs> 
<laughs> that's the vibe. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, oh, I want to do that series of YouTube videos. Absolutely. Crack open a cold one with the boys, you know, and read some white papers. <laughs> Reading white papers while you're asking if you're under arrest. Yeah. <laughs> Am I being detained? Am I being detained? <laughs> I'm trying to read. This American is an Journal NIH Public study. Health. It's seven pages long. I'd like to finish it if I'm being entertained. Yeah. If, I just want to see the discussion, man. <laughs> if, if, anybody, if anybody out there wants uh, to start the least interesting uh, Twitch stream in the entire world, you should um, you should read white papers just verbatim. That sounds fun. Yeah, right? I'm into it. You know, yeah. we could do that. We, we could, could do, do anything. <laughs> we do a lot of speculating about things that aren't the podcast on the podcast. And That's because we're we so innovative so and we are such a good innovative business. Yeah. You know? Anyways, so, uh, the wonk zone. Wonk time. Hell yeah. So should we talk about this Veterans Health Administration study? Yeah. 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 No, this is this is great. This came out um, a couple days ago in, in Health Affairs. Uh, and it's this uh, study that's this lead authored by uh, shout out to Adam Gaffney. Yeah. Uh, yeah. P- mm-hmm. PNHP Physicians for National Health Plan crew uh, who are doing doing the the hard work they're they're putting in the elbow grease it's just like carefully every couple months coming out with a study that illustrates in sort of pristine detail the value of a single payer health system yeah, yeah and, totally and I, I was thinking about this because um so this is a study about why people don't take their uh, medications that they're prescribed and in like wonk speak for some reason this is just called adherence which mm-hmm. is a very, to me, has always been like a very creepy term. Adherence. Yeah, it's, it's like patronizing. Not adhering to the, it's, yeah. it's not very adhering like to a the prescription, though. I mean, it's, it is literal, I guess. It I mean, is literal, to right? Regimen or something. I guess. Yeah. It's just, it, yeah. Yeah. It always seemed a little bit paternalistic to me anyway. From yeah. the patient side, it's usually medication compliance, which is even compliance, worse, right. kind of. Compli- yeah. yeah, compliance yeah. is, I think, the worst. So, but yeah. I, I I, went to a conference entire, like a two-day conference on adherence maybe three or four years ago now. And wait, the whole th- conference? The whole conference was on adherence. So in this wow. entire field. Two or three days? So wait, wow. they do entire, con- let, let me just get this straight, Phil, because if I recall from reading this study, one of the things that they say kind of from the jump is that there isn't a significant body of research really comparing like the healthcare system that exists for the vast majority of us to the VA. Right. Yeah. So that is both the case. And also there are entire conferences on (laughs) adherence and no one has done this study, but like recently, this is, I was going to say the the conference was very, you know, this is the first time I had ever, I went, it was one of those things that I went to. I had never went to a conference like this before. And you, it's sort of like when you jump into like the, the dark shadows convention and you're like, <laughs> Oh, here are all of the, the super fans. Yeah. Um, and, uh, y- you know, the really funny thing about the conference is the whole question is like, why don't people adhere to their, their prescriptions? And there was maybe only one paper at the entire conference, which was several days long, about the role of cost. Oh my god. In, wow. in in non-adherence. And <sighs> most of the papers were about testing these behavioral interventions. Like, what if we like tell people this? Or what if we people give people like this incentive or like we push information to them on this app or whatever? And yeah. the whole question of like, oh, copays, uh right. deductibles. <laughs> that's just completely for a very, very long time 
completely left off the table. And the idea that people would be doing, there was like the keynote was like, maybe we should be doing things with like, you know, looking at the effects of different systems. And that was like very, very different and very weird at the time. This is 2015. And Mm -hmm. so this this paper uh, is basically like, yeah, so let's just consider, I don't know, the idea that uh, maybe people don't adhere to their medications because of what they have to pay. And uh, what they do is they compare, you know, uh, people in the same sort of health situations, uh, adjust for race, sex, uh, age, um, and look at their adherence to, uh, medications. And the thing that varies is, do you have VA healthcare or do you have some other kind of healthcare? Right. And the reason is that VA healthcare is very distinctive. Um, and, uh, you know, we could talk about some reasons why it's distinctive. I mean, isn't v- VA healthcare is essentially a combination or 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 some amalgam of like single payer and and an, and an a- NHS system, right? I mean, it's a uh, yeah. I mean, it's they they have like it's a little weirder because they have like different tiers of coverage based on like how much of your care is a direct result of your service record. Or Here, here's the let's let's just say the top line thing to think about the VA is what you're going to pay out of pocket for most prescriptions is rarely going to go beyond $11 a month. Right. And they have these like, that's uh, the big difference. And, right. and also like the VA has this like while, while even though they do have like, uh, they have different ways of like classifying people and certain people have like different, for instance, like maximum out of pockets for mm-hmm. stuff. I think like the, the overall out of pocket for prescription drugs maxes out at like $700 a year or yeah. something. Right. Yeah. Um, which is also like pretty, I mean, not totally, but like, I mean, I think, you know, the reason that we, uh, like death panel are interested in this study is largely because like it does kind of, it does like very literally show this division, right. Where you have, you have basically like a different form of like a, a lot of what ends up being a, a discussion or an argument in like healthcare policy arguments or whatever, including over Medicare for all is essentially like a cost sharing thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like currently we have like absurd cost sharing in most of our healthcare system where we're like everyone basically spends like thousands of dollars of their own income. I think the average year. is like $8,000 right, for a yeah. family of four. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. And this is the reason that my grandmother does not take her, uh, course of medication that she's supposed to take. Yeah, She exactly. literally this can't is, afford it. This is why people ration insulin. This is why like, we even like B and I like sometimes have to like fill prescriptions late or something. It's like, uh, even with the Medicare part D extra help, like right, we're, yeah, it's still exactly. a problem. So yeah. the idea here is you look at the VA, which is like essentially a separate, a totally separate health system within the United States. So like same basic, like geography population, it's like two, it's, these are like two overlapping or not overlap two like overlaid systems basically on the same, on like similar population. Right. So you look at these two and then the results of looking at the differences here are like staggering, if I may. Yeah. Yeah. So people, even though, I mean, the other thing to note is that like the VA population is on average uh, older than the rest of the population. It's uh, typically in, in poor health, but their adherence to medication is significantly better uh, they take the medications that they're prescribed um, than people in the rest of the system. So VA patients had lower rates of not adhering to uh, their drugs uh, that didn't adhere to them at a rate of 6.1% 
as opposed to uh, everybody else, which the rate of non-adherence is like 10.9%. So it's a huge difference between, uh, you know, right. And and again, cost isn't everything. There are a lot of other reasons why it's hard for people to, you know, adhere to their medications. Um, Fill limits, uh, other kinds of restrictions, uh, administrative burden, as we've already like talked about in this podcast, like a lot. Cost isn't the only thing, but it's really significant. It's a huge um, especially, part of especially when you look at subpopulations, right? Like people with COPD, uh, mm-hmm. like yeah. the, the, even the, the difference in non-adherence between those two populations for COPD is much larger. Um, so this is just one, which for you, uh, which for you, non wonk heads out there is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I I mean, like, one of the things that I think is important to note is that, like, Medicare Part D, right, Mm -hmm. which is what I'm on, um, still has pretty significant cost sharing. It's not anywhere close to the VA cap of $700 annually. You have this... I mean, that's not anywhere near as close to as, like, generous as that, or... Oh, it's like five grand is the donut hole. Yeah, right. There is a stupid thing in Part D that's a donut hole, which is a gap sort of in the middle of your benefits between when you've sort of hit your deductible and when you're in catastrophic coverage. I blew through my donut hole immediately, mm-hmm. but if I were less sick or on less expensive medications... That's a lot of out of pocket that I can't afford. Right. right? Like, and so even um, a lot of seniors who are on Medicare Part D with extra help get stuck in the donut hole and then can sometimes go up to six months without being able to afford their medications. Right. I hear this happening all the time to my grandmother's friends in Florida. Which, again, keep in mind, the real thing to underline here is it's very easy to get bogged down when you use like words like compliance or adherence or whatever because it's so like clinical but it is also a thing of like people rationing their insulin people mm-hmm. die rationing their having oxygen. to ration their insulin um b for example when she has like had to miss a couple of weeks of chemo or something mm-hmm. very very bad results because then her uh like Im- her immunological condition, which is usually like mediated by medication is like not checked. Running rampant. It's running rampant. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it like fucks up her body. And I think that it's really important to just like, again, I want to like kind of make this accessible. So like, I think it's really important to like look at some of these differences because it's it's one thing to say like yes general population you look at like the differences, the disparities for people um, who like it just in general across the board, but also like Phil is saying with like COPD or other chronic conditions, because the study explicitly looks at chronic conditions, mm-hmm. the differences become extreme with like how I would almost like argue that this is kind of like like si- a sideways way to look at like access to getting mm-hmm. your fucking medication, yeah. being able to afford to it. So when you actually look at those, for example, for people who have or like who are within the VA system, medication non-compliance, if you have uh, COPD, uh, mm-hmm. obstructive lung disease, um, non-compliance is like 6.4%. If you are in any other system other than the VA. Even Medicare and Medicaid. Even Medicare and Medicaid, looking at this like sample size of like 100,000 people roughly that they that they are looking at, it jumps from 6% to 19.8%. Holy shit. Yeah. Which is gigantic. Cardiovascular disease, also around 6% medication non-compliance for people. VA, VA. patients. Uh, that jumps again from six to fourteen point three seven percent. Also, 
on top of it, it shows, as Phil was mentioning, breakdowns by by like if you're white, black or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And in general, let's just look at like one of these. Uh, but there are a lot of statistics here. So like this is probably the most relevant one. Couldn't afford a prescription drug. Yeah. Right. VA system. If you're white, 4.28 percent uh, said that they did medication non-adherence because they couldn't afford a drug, right? How about for non-VA? Uh, Non-VA, 5.88%. So that's a really small distinction, 4.28 to 5.88. But remember, even 1%, when you round it out to the U.S. population, that's it's a like lot of people. A lot of people. Thousands yeah. and thousands of people. Hey. Yep. Um, uh, if you're Hispanic, or for mm-hmm. the Hispanic people in this, in this study... Hispanic patients within the VA system, uh, medication non-adherence because they couldn't afford a prescription drug, 2.84%. That jumps for non-VA people to 8.56%. And that is just across the board for couldn't afford a prescription drug just based on like... And Not what is being it for white. black patients, which is probably going to be the largest one, knowing for, for like racial disparity in yep, healthcare? For black patients, it is within the VA. Four point nine percent said they, you know, missed stuff because they couldn't afford a prescription. They missed drugs because they couldn't afford them. Ten point six three percent said that in like general. So this is like th- this is a huge indictment. That's right. in my mind. This is a huge indictment of our healthcare system. If you do that to steal, that's hundreds of thousands of people putting themselves at risk for like what is it the thing this the secondary morbidity complication of skipping your insulin which is when your body does what the keto diet is supposed to do right. where right. it starts <laughs> eating its own fat yep. and that produces so much acid that you like poison yourself right. and die of like kidney failure, yeah. which can happen incredibly quickly. If you're a type one diabetic who's insulin dependent and you're trying to ration or use Walmart insulin, which is not for people right. like that. It's like a different drug. Right. So I, I think it's also worth extrapolating some of this like data into just a couple of buckets, like from, uh, I did what every good reader of a white paper does and skipped to the conclusion. <laughs> Let's not be uncharitable to this. This is not a white paper. This is a study. Fair. Right? Yep, this is a study. In any case. <laughs> I, this is not produced by like Cigna. Fair. Yeah, we should also just say that like when the weeds talks about white, when the, like, the weeds talks about white papers, they're often talking about published studies. They yeah. misuse yeah. the term white paper. That's true. Sorry, absolutely. we... This is the wonks. Sorry, zone, people. Wonks. Yeah. Yeah. This is. Uh, welcome to the. Welcome to my house. It's almost like yeah. there aren't any real wonks on that podcast. But this You're one my house now, one. Man. It's almost like it's an advertising company that has a publishing vertical. I have a quick question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. I have a anyway. quick question, Phil. Um, so, like, it's very clear, uh, I think, to all four of us at this point and anyone listening that the issue here is cost with yeah. compliance, yes. right? So, this was a two to three day uh, conference you went to, Phil, and you said only one paper that was presented mentioned cost. So, what were some of the other reasons people were spending time talking about as possible reasons why people were not like taking their medication? Are they like, oh, old people are are like they are uh, too spacey, so they need like an you app or a phone app call. I mean, well, no, look, look, this is this is actually an important thing to note. So, like, in, in thinking about the study that Adam Gaffney et, et al. like published, it, yeah. it says something that anyone who's living it's January now. It's 2020. Yeah. People are probably looking at their deductibles again. They're 
Google you know, going Lord to the pharmacist counter and it's it's insane, right? Yeah, they're learning um, about their new formula. They're learning about the fact that they have deductibles, et cetera. Like people con- conventionally who have to experience the the healthcare system that we have, they know this. They know the finding of this study. You don't need to know statistics or economics or whatever to understand this, right? Right. Right. Um, and so the question is like, why do you need to keep doing this? So like, why are these studies necessary if they have like an obvious finding? And the answer is that like in the sort of political economy that we live in, like the bar or the uh, the standard of proof or the burden of proof on something that would actually work like Medicare for all, but is not currently in place is always an unfairly higher. Uh, You just have to keep demonstrating this over and over again with fancier and fancier uh, techniques. But I think the, the value, one of the things that is one of the reasons I think it's so important that this is that Medicare for all is on the table and that studies like this come out Mm -hmm. is that it puts to bed or really checks this notion that what's wrong with the healthcare system or whatever is that like people aren't behaving well. And what we need to do is figure out ways of disciplining people better and making sure that people control themselves. This sort of like Foucauldian, like uh, biopolitical project, right? And if you read these studies... Or doing some kind of like behavioral engineering to sort of get people to like live in their best interests. Yeah. It's like the famous uh, Obama nudge philosophy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that frankly, the just one outcome I, I hope is I, I think all public policies in one way or another, they help to reconstruct the social world. Um, they introduce us to new concepts and new ideas about how the world works. And mm-hmm. I really hope that with Medicare for all, we begin to see like, oh, it's not that like people, patients are just like bad actors or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, bad compliers. We um, all are. All of us. We, we need all to are. Ask. We need to be monitored constantly yeah. because you can't you, trust us. You know, it's this black mirror, <laughs> again, sort of like world and realize that, no, in fact, there are some things that we can do to make people's lives less hellish, totally. uh, even totally. modestly. <laughs> At minimum, making them not have to pay for uh, the medications they get. Absolutely. Yeah. And to, and to that point, Phil, like, I think it's, it's important to think about like this in, in this study, in the context of like all of the like democratic healthcare proposals that totally. have been, um, <laughs> Such a good point. you know, that have like been, you know, put on the table at this point. So like only Bernie Sanders Medicare for all plan has zero copays or deductibles, Right. Every at the point of at the point of service. Yeah. Every other plan, including fucking Warren's, mm-hmm. right, have copayments. Have have like a you know like a Minotaur's uh, <laughs> labyrinth style of like carve outs and exceptions and like specific types of right. like coverage exactly. and, and percentages. It's very yes. it's all very heavy, heavily reliant on cost sharing. Right. Yeah. Which exactly. is the current system and which would be a public option, which is why a public option will not work. Right. right. And 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 that basically, you know, this essentially illustrates why a public option has almost none of the benefits of a Medicare for all system right. with basically all of the drawbacks right (laughs) i mean like truly essentially all it does is spend more money and get some people off of like shitty private insurance like that's the only thing that it does it doesn't bring down administrative costs it Mm -mm. doesn't uh like you know lower these kinds of like burdens for people um it doesn't like 
you know, make the experience of getting healthcare and paying for healthcare uh, and keeping yourself healthy like any fucking better. It You're doesn't s- free workers from the no. benefits trap. No. Yeah. Union or non-union. Exactly. And so like, you know, it's worth thinking about like when you hear like a wonky policy person maybe on another podcast say, <laughs> well, you know, you have to have some uh, kind of co-payment or deductible or cost sharing to keep uh, usage rates down, right? Well, you know? and also to make sure other... that they appreciate it. Exactly, yeah. and it's and it's to just you know they they often say it's to remind people that like money is being spent for their health care, right. and this puts that argument well, basically in the ground. Yeah, and I I mean I totally agree, and I think that basically also I think that particularly looking at those the like the differences in outcomes for. Uh, one people who uh, have chronic conditions and two people who are just who just are, are not white um, mm-hmm. frankly <laughs> are which seems to be the number one factor in being able to secure healthcare in the United States right. at are, this but point. Th- those are like really those are extremely important data points my takeaway from this study is uh, really a couple of things one uh, we need Medicare for all <laughs> Hell okay. yes. um, two uh, we always suspected it, but it is now scientifically proven that we need medical for all. Um, three, there's been a lot of flack online lately and in general, I think in political discourse about the line that I want to say proudly that we have been pretty early on mm-hmm. in the discourse, which is that if you don't support Medicare for all, you want to kill poor people. <laughs> Right? Yep. If you don't support Medicare and not for all, you want disabled and poor people to die. Yeah, I and I, I'm the... gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that this both allows me to double down on that, and also I'm just gonna uh, put this out here. This also uh, makes me sure that if you don't support Medicare for all, you are racist. <laughs> um, Hell yeah. Let me rephrase that. Pete Buttigieg is racist. <laughs> Um, and not just for all the cop shit that he yeah, did. I was just going to um, say. But uh, so yeah, I mean. Can I can I maybe close this out on this one and lead us into our next one with my like Matt yeah. Iglesias galaxy brain? Oh, yes, Like please. over Ooh, overly baked out of take. Head as he Should talks. I take a deep breath? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of a wild one. And I pure moves. wish I could do his voice, but I can't and I won't. So yeah, don't even gonna. try because I might like lose control and. <laughs> Yeah. physically harm try me. To, try to kill me. Yeah, I might think you're Matt in the room. It's bad. <laughs> My name but, is a killing word. <laughs> so, like, so, so if we think about all of the like non-adherence to medication regimens, whatever, as essentially like people not getting better or the healthcare system like not making them less sick. Waste, or, fraud, and abuse. Exactly. Right. Of people. Exactly. Is, is effectively <laughs> Ooh, means that all... That, burn. <laughs> that the current system has like this massive inefficiency in it in the form of doctors <laughs> prescribing medication to people that they can't afford and then don't take. How fucking yes. Think, think about how much like, you know, opportunity cost or whatever that shit is called. Yeah. You would essentially save if when a doctor tells a person you should take this medication and and it's again not that there's too many prescriptions being written but that there is a 
bureaucracy in the current payer system of healthcare that literally keeps people from being able to just get the prescriptions. Right. Right. I mean, I have doctors who have admitted to me that they will waste their time with certain pharma reps because they know they have a lot of patients who need those samples. Right. And that's additional waste, fraud and abuse of the administrative healthcare system and of the time of doctors. Exactly. So I think that leads us into our next uh, this one's also a study, not a white paper. But, it is a study. Um, this is also yeah, a PNHP. A, yeah. PNHP production. Shout outs. We um, love that. So yeah, so this is, uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to, I'll, Go I'm gonna roll. It. I'm roll with this one. So this is this is published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, you know, I'm sure this is Good like Tiger annals. Beat. This is Tiger Beat for uh, internal medicine. <laughs> you know, uh, JTT. Like they just got the JTT on the cover. <laughs> so this is uh, this paper is by David Himmelstein, Terry Campbell, and Steffi Woolhandler. Um, also PNHP crew uh, rolling deep, and this is about administrative costs um, in the United States and Canada. Um, and the, again, what, what I'm about to say may not surprise you, but when (laughs) you don't have, but when your providers don't have to, when your doctors and nurses and other folks at the hospital or clinic don't have to negotiate or deal with, uh, paperwork from multiple insurers with multiple payment rates, uh, and other sort of specific features of their administrative um, special sauce, if you will. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise, overhead in the hospital um, and the amount of time that your doctors and nurses spend on the phone dealing with these people, if they only have to deal with one, one single pair, right. the expense and time goes down. Let me just give wow. you, let me just give you, wow, wow. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my god. Are you serious right now? Oh my god. Has anyone read this study yet? (laughs) I mean, again and again, this is just like we shouldn't have to keep saying this, but this is the power of this is the power of the status quo is that you have to keep saying this and your studies have to be good. They have to be better, in fact, than the studies, the sort of like two page editorials that uh, the annals run saying that like Medicare for all just never work. Um, (laughs) So here, just just as an example, um, this I love I love this because it just to me, I grew up. My mom is a nurse and uh, I, I think this just illustrates things. So the number of hours per week. Um, interacting with payers by people in physicians' offices. In the United States, nurses spend, on average, uh, 20.6 hours per week, valued at $36,000 U.S. In Canada, nurses spend about 2.5 hours per week talking to payers uh, on the phone, uh, valued at about $4,000 U.S. Um, Clerical staff... In mm-hmm. the United States, spend about 53 hours a week dealing with uh, payers. Clerical staff in the United States spend about 15 or 16 hours uh, per week dealing with payers on the phone. In uh, physicians okay. Jesus uh, in yeah. uh, the United States spend wow. uh, th- about 3.4 hours per week. Um, but they're they're sort of buffered by these other people like nurses and, and, and clerical staff. Uh, in, the, in Canada, they spend about 2.2 uh, hours per week uh, talking to payers. That just gives you right. a, gives you sort of a sense of like where overhead is coming in these two different systems. Yeah, I mean, you see, like literally, the administrative bloat that's needed to accommodate the multi payer system that we have now. Right, doing drug ap- appeals 
over the past 10 years has changed drastically. You know, every year the insurance company would add like a new appeals department or update the process. Eventually it got to the point where instead of having one person who handles all the appeals, that there was a team of dedicated people for each insurance company right. of which NYU takes like 70. And so it went from like the appeals person to the appeals department. And when you switch insurances, you get switched. And when you have a secondary that someone else handles out, it's like insane. The complexity is so wasteful and unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, this, this, it's essentially what literally everybody who is an advocate of Medicare for all has basically said and what should be completely obvious to literally everybody who like has a pulse. Yeah, exactly. Like understands, uh, like the concept of Medicare for all, but, but I think this does just do like a very good job of like putting, you know, numbers on it. Now, the other thing I think that I want to just emphasize is when this study, the reason that things like this study are important is that someday in the future, and it won't be long, (laughs) we're going to have a Medicare for all bill and it's going to be on the floor of Congress and it's, you know, it's going to be, it's going to pass in the house and there's going to be a question at some point raised, how much is it going to cost? Right. And uh, how much money is it going to save, et cetera. And the, the terrible sort of set of institutions that we have is going to treat this in a blunt way. And it's really important that we document what exactly these systems do. But the, the issue that I want to bring up is even when we look at things like this, you know, and there's, there'll, there will be people out there who invariably say, well, you know, they, they don't calculate this. They're not, t-. they're going to be people who pick this sort of thing apart and they're going to be doing it in bad faith and they're going to be fools. Right. right? But the thing to emphasize is whatever estimate of administrative cost we do in the United States and we look at it formally in the system, what the you know doctors are doing, what the nurses are doing, what the clerical staff is doing, it is going to be an underestimate where it's going to be a conservative estimate of how much administrative cost because it doesn't take yeah, into totally. consideration the administrative burdens that patients face. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the misery and suffering that comes from having to change insurers, uh, deal with uh, new uh, sort of options uh, or diminished options or mm-hmm. narrow networks. Um, and that is under a system that, that single payer is going to radically change. Those administrative burdens are going to uh, uh, diminish. And if you don't believe me, look at the amount of people who roll off of Medicaid every year mm-hmm. or roll off of their private plans uh, every year due to like job loss or divorce versus what happens on Medicare. Um, right. or the VA. I mean, the, the other thing, right, is that like because of this uh, like administrative savings, it's going to I mean, isn't it going to kind of change the way that uh, like doctors are able to practice medicine, too? Yeah. I mean, I think that right now you see a uh, sort of growing movement towards like decentralized networks of outpatient care and mm-hmm. telehealth. And I think part of that comes out of the fact that it's very expensive and practically to untenable to be in a private practice and be a family doctor or community doctor between the student loans that people come out with Mm -hmm. and the burden of hiring the staff to even file the claims to chase the money down. Um, There are services where you can basically say, okay, I'm going to send all my billing to the service and they try and collect it and they take 40% off the top. So it's like that, if that's the best case scenario for being like a single person practice, which like used to be pretty common. Right. Yeah. Then 
you really can't like afford to do much of anything yeah. at so, that point. So I think it would change. It would give doctors like more freedom in terms of being able to like advocate for their patients, more freedom right. in terms of being able to treat patients that they feel their skills are best suited to, not just because they're the ENT whose insurance right. that yeah. is accepted, you well, know, like, is, well, wouldn't it also, uh, like greatly ease the burden on, um, rural healthcare providers? Exactly. And that's what I'm saying because it's like the rural healthcare providers have the same problem. Right. Right. And like, you can be the only doctor within like 50 miles mm -hmm. in certain yeah. states. And like, usually those people are operating alone and there's right. like no backup, no infrastructure, no support. So right now, like essentially doctors are almost forced to either join a mega practice or join in a teaching institution, uh, or stay in a major metropolitan area just for at least the first like 10 years to just recoup the out of pocket costs of attending right, medical yeah. school and residency and their fellowships, which like cost fucking money right. too. Well, which is why I hope that like, I don't know, it's like certainly like clearly for instance, like nurses are a huge force advocating for Medicare for all, but why I also hope that like something like PNHP, um, the uh, Physicians for a National Health Program, like both gets bigger and is able to do things like perhaps sway the AMA eventually to like come out in favor of Medicare for all. That because, could be cool. Right. Because like, I mean, I would still have a beef with them, but that would be cool. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think that like, I don't know. I I wish that more we've been with like we've been uh, working on a project, basically. And it's interesting looking at how few people there are really who are like very high profile who like really proselytize and advocate for Medicare mm -hmm. for all uh, explicitly like obviously you know if you look at um, all these different areas of like socialist policy mm -hmm. uh, or just you know like good let's just say even for Medicare for all good so like public policy um, there are I don't know. I feel like the the pool is like unfortunately small and I do wish that like, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure that for someone like, for instance, like Adam Gaffney, one of the founding mm -hmm. members of PNHP, it was, uh, I'm sure professional, I'm sure there were professional difficulties in coming out as like such a, like, uh, totally, like yeah. staunch political activist or whatever, but like, at, or, you know, someone with like a very explicit political views on he's also at NYU right yeah. um but like yeah because if you support because if you support what exists if you support the status quo or at least you don't challenge it it's not as if you don't have political views you clearly do you just right. never have yes, to take exactly. on the burden of defending it that's right. the issue yes, right you absolutely. can just go ahead publish your papers, get tenure, you know, live a very nice, comfortable life, but you never take on any burdens of exactly. doing things that would bring justice uh, for people, which is actually sort of what all of these professions, physicians, you know, <laughs> social scientists, they nominally have some kind of uh, history. They're supposed to like, I don't know, help other people in some way. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, I don't know, just spitballing here. And, and I think it's like, it takes, it takes thinking about your, what the purpose of being here on earth with this set of skills, <laughs> totally. uh, you know, is for, well, I mean, I hope that like, I hope to see more people in that professional class, like, like come out in support of some of this stuff, which would clearly not only benefit them, but also as we were talking about with the other study, benefit their patients. Like mm -hmm. we, B and I were talking about this, um, 
yesterday actually but we were thinking about like the like the sort of the sort of like ongoing chilling effect and legacy of the McCarthy era yeah um where you make you make a really good example of like why you can't mix like being a physician and being outspokenly political well you you like string people like so where people are like basically like strung up for their views right? right i mean the the fact that like uh they were the fact that like during the mccarthy area um they were able to basically enforce uh ho- like hollywood blacklisting right. so many like completely expunging a bunch of its workforce for holding certain political views and I they feel did like, it to academics too yeah, it, yeah. Like, and there's it, a chilling effect like cr- that but, reverberates and that, that that yeah exactly but that chilling effect is not just like for that generation or that it also means that yeah, yeah or just for that profession it's also a chilling effect that means that like the people who the people who then like taught and informed and influenced like that next and next and next and next generation of people like were not like the uh, the like for them the uh how to put it like the entire left faction of american political thought was essentially like truncated and like held from them right basically um and i feel like now i mean like only now are we starting to get back to the how to put it i was thinking about like in the at the by the like the late 30s or something uh there were like almost sixty thousand people in the communist party in the yeah. United States. Wow. Um, there were 40,000 additional in the American Socialist Party. Like, and, you know, right now DSA has something like 56,000 members or whatever. But it's like, I don't know. To me, it feels like there is, like, there is a, we are in possibly a moment that we should, should not. Have been in. Well, no, we're possibly <laughs> in a moment where we're like, it's like the rediscovery of um, class consciousness progress or something like or like po- like uh, political possibility for but, the left I mean, in America I think you see, and you we can't see that lose al- this time yeah I mean you see it also in some of the coverage of this Iran stuff where uh, so like their foreign minister his visa to the United States was blocked and he was supposed to address the UN and so he's done a couple press interviews saying you know the United States government doesn't want me to come and tell the truth to the American people <laughs> and he said a really interesting thing in an interview with NPR earlier this week, which was like uh, basically responding to Amy Klobuchar saying that they had announced that they were building bombs, an atom bomb or whatever. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 no. We're advocating for like global disarmament, basically. And it's like, it's really kind of sad and funny and terrifying to see like uh, that essentially the United States is just like creating global conflict in order to justify holding on to its really big toys in a sense <laughs> and <laughs> you know like because if yeah, like, or to like or or like for the cia to like you know n- not get their budget cut or something like yeah that. Like, no exactly and it, yeah it's true no it's completely true i i think it's also like worth just thinking about like to to the point of of you know doctors uh like increasingly growing class consciousness and like, you know, seeing themselves as like agents in the fight for Medicare for all. It It is it has always been striking to me, like ever since I started like going to the doctor as like an adult, how like disengaged even they are made by the system itself. Mm-hmm. Like they are they are intentionally kept, you know really far away from like knowing how much anything costs like i mean we could start talking about epic and we could have like a three-hour conversation about how like (laughs) epic is literally a 
tool of despair right that is just sucking the energy and life out of doctors and creating mistakes scheduling software right. it's not just scheduling it's like prescriptions it's right. like yeah. a, a chart it's a chart software essentially right. and it's the, uh, most, the administration software that is the it's uh it's automating that 34 percent of the money spent yeah exactly. it's like definitely <laughs> demands like at least a third of that money too yeah. i'm sure in licenses oh, yeah. and Probably. contracts but yeah but, but still like you know this this fight sort of needs to happen on like a lot of different turfs uh because there's a lot of different barriers that need to be broken down and like a lot of different ridiculous industries that have popped up that like need to be either destroyed or uh like reformed and taken over by the state yeah but yeah and the reality is the reality is you you really can't have it both ways if you think no. it is and but i really think that there's a there's a thing among professionals which is they want to have it both ways they want to both believe that uh, healthcare is somehow right um and that it's good and holy and nice and sentimentally <laughs> kosher uh for healthcare to be a right but at the same time it's like oh well we can't no this is this is not no, we, we, we can have a right, right. but very much they like do. the way that we think about voting rights. Oh, we can have like a, a nice vote. Oh, you have a nice little voting right. But in fact, it's like we're going to make it as hard as possible for you to exercise. Right, yeah, they do the thing that the Pope did today, which is uh, access to health care as a human right. <laughs> right. <laughs> God damn it, bro. Well, it's like, the same thing. It's like, okay, so so take up the clean, you know, I'm sure that the Pope somewhere in some encyclical of his says that uh, access to clean water is, is, a, is a human right. Well, what does that mean? That like, yeah. oh, you can, you can see and then like purchase the non-fecally contaminated water. That, that that's a right. Right. Uh, but, but actually also, being like, able to drink it is not a right. That's for for that that the stakes are so low for that fucking dickhole like well he he gives healthcare. <laughs> he like he has like i don't know what a thousand em- fucking employees and like gives health care to like those people he could say whatever the fuck he wants and nobody's gonna be like hey so what you're saying a lot of similarities to paul krugman yeah actually. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean ah! You know, Phil, how... Just let that one <laughs> bloom. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how, how would people appreciate the water they were drinking if they didn't know the cost of making it clean? No, oh, yes, that's no. right. The skin in the game. We put it in the vending machine, really, for you. You know, like, it's yeah. in the vending machine. It's there for you. You can get it. <laughs> Just... They you know. came up with the idea of skin in the game in Sparta. That's like where the skin in the game came from. It's like, oh, your baby won't really understand what it's like to be strong if you don't leave leave her on a cliff somewhere to die. <laughs> Great. Skin Love in the it. game, man. Skin in the game. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Oh, oh God. I think uh, we should probably get to wrapping yeah is there anything else we wanted to cover today i feel like um there's we have a lot of stuff on the we have stuff on the outline but i think that we kind of like worn ourselves out by this point well i think also like that was a good kind of contained stretch that yeah we did do kind of a good job of drawing drawing it back yeah big picture um so i think that about does it for this episode Become a patron if you'd like to get a second bonus episode every week. That's patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Yep. And uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Do your best to stay alive another week. Yeah. And um, go and join a action civil disobedience or uncivil disobedience or protest near you. Um, and if you can't get out of bed, you can post to protest too. Yeah. And 
to uh, posting yeah, is not a crime. We need to mm-hmm. make sure that the messages are loud and clear that this Iran shit will not stand. Yep. No, because um, I honestly I would much rather have a big conversation about global disarmament instead. And they seem down. So yeah. got to protect our comrades so we can have that conversation. So what you're saying. Also, is I think keep in mind, like many go on death panel. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that like there has been like large scale civil unrest due to like austerity in Iran. Yeah. That has only just been sort of quelled by this. Right. So like we can't let the civil demands of the people of Iran get just swept away in this global conflict too, right. because it's like that shit is also still happening and we're now just making it worse. Yeah. You know, and uh, with that positive note, well, and on this, <laughs> well, actually speaking of that too, shout out, huge shout out to the, uh, striking railway workers in France who occupied the black, Ro- like uh, black rock building. Yeah. Did they like make a barricade um, and set it on fire in the lobby of their office building? Seems like they did. Hell yeah. Um, that's our landlords protesting, uh, cuts to pensions. So hell yeah. yeah. Anyways, Stay if you'd like to talk week. about ways that you can organize, we have a brand new general strike channel in our discord server. So join the server as well as meet, regional channels. Yeah. Meet too. folks in your area, plan actions and go ahead and, you know, yeah. keep listening and Rate the show. I don't yeah, know. totally. No, really. I we mean, we appreciate if, all your help and support. If you do, if you have been enjoying the show, the Discord is very fun. The kind of it's like you know, we do the show twice a week. One is for patrons only, but um, the conversation for the most part doesn't stop. Stop. Except ever. for you know, sometimes when we're just like swamped or something. But like also, we're getting chemotherapy. But there's a like there's there's a growing community of people on there, and it's been really awesome to see yeah Um, so no cops no fbi no cia thank you (laughs) (laughs) bye bye